Hello, simpletons. Welcome to the Minimalist Private Podcast. You are in for a treat today. What you're getting ready to hear is our entire Love People Use Things event that took place in Atlanta toward the end of last year with our good friend TK Coleman. It was a magical night and we're grateful we get to share it with you. We'll be back in studio next week for regular podcasts, but I gotta tell you this before we dive in to this episode. Now, you may have already heard the minimal episode earlier this week and really enjoyed those first couple questions that we answered, and you're gonna hear those again here, so if you wanna skip forward, that's fine, but it was such a magical night that we wanted to share this with all of our patrons, not just the true fans and the VIPs who have access to all of our live events. We wanted you to have access to this no matter what level of support you give us. Thank you so much for keeping our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement free. Now enjoy this evening of less with our good friend, TK Coleman. Well, Ryan, I suppose um, we should start with the ads, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Wait, why are you laughing? <laughs> this episode of The Minimalist is brought to you by nobody, because... I mean, that was pretty good. I mean, it wasn't sorry. Florida good, but it was... It was all right. <laughs> I, no, I'm sorry. We were in Florida last night, and they were just... Uh, they just dislike advertisements more than you. It's fine. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Sean, delete that. We'll just go back and do it. We'll pretend that didn't happen, and we'll start from the beginning. All right, shh, here we go. All right, take one. <laughs> this episode of The Minimalist is brought to you by nobody, because... Advertisement sucks! I really want to apologize. To the, and there's like three or four people who are in advertising in here, and I... <laughs> look, I know you're a part of the problem, but... Um, <laughs> But it doesn't mean we don't love you. Any, I mean, we do. It's just that um, there is a, a major, major issue going on right now. It's called consumerism, and it's fueled by markers, marketers and demographers and so forth. And I was, used to be one of these people, so I, I totally get it. Anyway, we have a special guest here tonight. Before we get there, I guess we give him an introduction. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are The Minimalists. And we are live here in Atlanta. <laughs> Oh, man, we have a special guest for you here tonight. Um, here's how these things work. We'll have a short conversation, but then there's a microphone set up back here as well. So if any of you have a question and you want to go over to the microphone, it usually takes one person to break the seal, and then all of a sudden there is a, a herd of people who run toward the microphone. And so that first courageous person can break the seal. We'll take it easy on you, I promise. But before we get to questions, Ryan, I thought we would bring up our guest. Yeah. What a special night it is tonight, and I'm mm. grateful that we get to spend this evening with you and, and with him. You know him from Netflix, you know him from The Minimalist Podcast, and you also know him from his hit show, Revolution of One. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, T.K. Coleman. So y'all wrote the book, but I wrote the theme song. <laughs> Love people, use things. 
coming. The album is coming out That's this right. Christmas. That's right. There's an EP that. Uh, yeah. I, I, I got. I got a funny story about uh, music. You want to hear it? Yeah, I want to hear it. Has it. nothing to do with anything that we're here for tonight. But. <laughs> so, I've been traveling a lot this past month. You guys know know this. Being on tour, in and out of Uber rides, hotels, and so on. So I live in Charleston. It's not like LA where you can always get an Uber. So you got to schedule ahead of time. So it's like 4:30 in the morning. I'm standing outside. It's dark out there. I'm waiting on my Uber ride. Just me. My lonesome, my briefcase. And driver pulls up and he's, his windows are tinted. And uh, you just hear the sound of his bass like. <laughs> now, usually what happens is I walk up to my car, the driver gets out, they reach for my suitcase. I go, no, 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 I'm good. And then they say, no, no, I got it. I go, no, no, I'm good. They say, I got it. And I say, okay, cool, thank you. Right? And then they take my, my suitcase. This guy didn't do that. You just see the pop, the, the trunk pop. <laughs> So it's 4.30 in the morning, it's dark outside, I'm by myself, trunk pops. I'm like, okay, all right. So I put my own, you know, suitcase in, and then I get in, he says nothing to me. He just looks at me through the rear view, keeps going with this music, still loud, doesn't turn it down at all. So we get like halfway to the airport, and we're stopped at a red light, and he turns his music down. No, no, first, before he turns it down, he says, something, something, something. I go, what? Some, some, some. I say, what? Some, some, some. What? Then he turns his music down and he says, is my music too loud? <laughs> okay, it's not over, right? So, as you all know, big part of my philosophy of life is to strive for a life of self-authenticity. To be willing to stand alone for the sake of taking a stand. And, you know, you got to be willing to look people in the eyes and speak your truth, even if that means they might be disappointed in you or they might stereotype you. And so I'm thinking to myself, I want to tell this guy the truth right now, but we're like 10 minutes away from the airport. And if I tell him the truth, it might be an awkward ride, mm. right? And if he stereotypes me in the wrong direction, I might get like a, what, like two stars or something like that. <laughs> I, I want those five stars, man, right? So there's truth or five-star rating. Right. You know, priorities. Gotta keep that rating, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, that sounds like a, a memoir title. <laughs> By T.K. Coleman. Truth or five stars. I love it. <laughs> Actually, it sounds like a self-help book. Five-star truth. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, man. And, and he's, he's waiting on his answer. And this red light is lasting forever, right? <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, this, this inner voice says, you cannot tell students that they need to be authentic and refuse to tell this man what you really think. And I'm like, oh, man. I just got to keep it real. And uh, he's looking at me. His hands are on the volume dial. The light is red. I'm waiting for it to turn green. Is my music too loud? And I say, hey, man, I'm, I'm just going to keep it real with you, bro. To be honest, I love Mariah Carey, so you can turn that all the way up. All the way up, bro. And the whole way there, man, we just like, dream, love, come, we were working it, man, for the whole 10 minutes. That was the best ride of my life. So, nothing to do with anything that we're here for, but that's my traveling story. God, TK, I love you. Yeah, man. Oh, that's great. TK has been on our podcast, I think, nine times at this point. He's, yeah. at this point, the honorary third minimalist. Mm -hmm. And um, what, what basketball player does that remind you of? Uh, Jeff Hornacek. <laughs> No one gets the reference. It's fine. Um, it's a 90s basketball reference. Um, but tonight is special because you and I and Ryan, it's almost as though like 
we, we have this weird Venn diagram of things that we disagree about. And Ryan and I disagree about things all, all the time. But when we put this third puzzle piece in here, it's almost as though like TK becomes the mediator and we form some sort of detente. And it feels like even when we're disagreeing, we're agreeing about everything. I don't know how you do it, man. There's a little bit of magic. So we got a microphone back there. I'd love to, uh, to start answering some questions. If not, we could just leave. <laughs> It's been great, Atlanta. <laughs> well, um, do we see someone? No, I, they didn't do it. Oh, there she is. There is someone. All right. And now here they come. Yes. Bravo. Clap for the first question. <laughs> hi. They deserve, they deserve the applause. Okay. Hi. Uh, my name is Alejandra. Uh, I'm going to read it so it's easier for me. Great. Um, yeah. So I have one question and then one request for the audience, but it's something nice. Um, since, uh, since I started listening to you guys, I live in three different countries, but your message hit me different when I arrived here to do my PhD. Uh, I've seen how overconsumption is seen as an intrinsic part of being a person in the United States, because uh, we don't use the term American like you guys do. Um, so even when I say I don't have a car in Atlanta, people see that as a superpower of being someone from abroad. So my question is, uh, if you've seen that overconsumption is used as a part of being an American, and also in a critique way, are you seeing that minimalism is being shown as a Western solution? Because I feel that sometimes. And Depends on what you, what do you mean by Western, exactly? Uh, I think sometimes, uh, yeah, it's like a problem that other countries have not created, and I think the power of, or sorry, the pressure of under-consuming is being put in places where we're not producing this program. Yeah. Sure, and what's the problem specifically? Oh, overconsumption, having yeah. too many things. I feel uh, even for some immigrants' communities here, that's a way to defend, because we have to pretend sure. to be from here, right? In, in the book, we talk about, let's, let's just take human beings out of it for a second. There's this great study between, uh, about chimps and bonobos. And um, what we learn is that as babies, chimps and bonobos are essentially the same. They'll share their bananas with other chimps and bonobos that are around them. But as they get older, they tend to bifurcate. And the, the bonobos will share. In fact, they'll even share when you try to force them to not share and you incentivize them to not share, they become even more generous. The chimpanzees, if, they, if, you give them two, if you give them one banana, they'll eat it. If you give them enough to eat for themselves and then enough to share, they will share. But if you give them an overabundance of bananas, they will fight other chimpanzees to the death to hold on to those bananas, which will then just rot after they've killed the other chimpanzees. And so what's the, uh, the moral of this? Is we get to decide where we end up here. I don't even think it's a uniquely Western problem or a uniquely human problem necessarily. It could be a primate problem or it could be um, amplified though by the Western world, by Americans. In fact, it's funny, when we tour overseas, uh, people still call it the American dream. In Australia, they call it the American dream. In Canada, they call it the American dream. In South Africa, they call it the American dream. And what is it? It used to be, what was the American dream before? Oh, if I make a modest salary, I could buy a modest house and earn modest means to provide for my family, right? That sounds wonderful. But now it's not 
keeping up with the Joneses, it's keeping up with everyone on your Instagram feed. And so it's been exacerbated by the Western world for sure, but I think there's a, a fundamental problem there as well. What do you think, TK? So I think part of what separates us as human beings from inanimate objects or plant life is that we crave action. We're not just brains in a vat. We're not just lifeless statuettes. We like to move around. We like to do stuff. And not just do stuff. We like to do stuff that is meaningful. We crave purposefully directed action. We, we long to use our organs and our faculties to express ourselves creatively in a way that uniquely showcases our like preferences, our priorities, and so on. And so we're not truly fulfilled unless we are creative. I heard someone say once that if aliens were to come visit our planet and they were to look at our science, they wouldn't be really impressed because their scientific understanding of the universe would be superior to ours. If they looked at our technology, they really wouldn't be impressed because their technology would be presumably more advanced than ours. But if they went into our comedy clubs, into our theaters, if they watched the way that we compose songs when we fall in love, they would say, wow, what's that? That's really interesting. Because art is subjective, that what makes us human is our capacity to create. That's where we find our deepest gladness. Now, what happens when we become alienated from our creative self? Well, we tend to become consumers. Not just consumers in a way that's necessary to sustain life in a healthy manner, but consumers in a way of trying to compensate for a void in our lives that can only be fulfilled through that expression of our highest self. And there are many ways to be out of touch with your creativity. You can be out of touch with creativity because you have low self-esteem. You can be out of touch with creativity because you believe other people are better than you, because you don't believe that it's possible, because you feel like you don't have money. And so when you look around the world in dif different geographical spaces, you find human beings come up with different excuses or different reasons in different places at different times throughout history for not believing in their creativity. The solution is the same, but the manifestation of the problem varies from individual to individual. And so what I would say is what's unique about America is that the reason we use for alienating ourselves from creativity is consumption. That's what makes us unique. But what binds us all together as a species is that we love to create. And ultimately, minimalism is just a way of getting back to that, right? So I wouldn't think about minimalism mathematically as if it's a philosophy that's characterized by the absence of stuff. But I would say minimalism, you want to think about it meaningfully. It's, it's characterized by the presence of purposeful, creative action. And that's the solution, and it works for anyone, anywhere. But we have to figure out what's their unique cultural hangup that's separating them from that first. Does that make sense? Yeah. I really should have went before you, TK. <laughs> you know, the alien talk reminds me of, uh, we've had some good talks about aliens. Like, I'm not like, I don't believe in aliens, but I love talking about all that, all that alien stuff anyway. I, 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 that example came from, um, I almost hate to admit, admit this, but Coast to Coast AM. <laughs> That's where they talked about that. Credibility is you know, I really appreciate the critique because, you know, I really, I try to live the most genuine life possible. Like, that is the one thing I've learned over the last 10 years is, like, that's, that's and it, unbeknowingly to me, that's how you really get to, like, love the person you see in the mirror. It's like, when you live a genuine life, 
it's so much easier to look at yourself in the mirror and it's easy to take critiques because honestly, like anything should be able to be critiqued. And when it comes to minimalism, um, I, I love having these conversations because I do think from that perspective of consumption that maybe it is just a Western solution, a Western problem. But kind of as TK was illuminating, you know, minimalism, it's an answer to a lot of different problems. And, and I think, it, like you said, these problems, they manifest in different ways. But, you know, I've had people email me from Kenya who were like, hey, like, I just want to say thank you so much for your message because, you know, I'm in Kenya and I was trying to get this job at the bank because I wanted to consume. And what I realized is that the life I have is actually a really good life. And there's no reason to, like, throw myself into this, this job just to be able to consume like an American. And so it doesn't, minimalism, yes, it helps with the stuff. It helps with if, if, you're, a, if you're a hoarder, um, but it also helps like if you're a collector and like maybe you want to like, uh, you know, minimize some of your, of your collection or you're an artist and you got too many art supplies, but also it helps with the impulse. And that is really what I appreciate about minimalism is like no matter where you are in the world, there is this impulse we all have to consume as much as possible. And what minimalism helps us do is it stops that impulse and it helps us question it. And sometimes we act on it, that's okay. But if we act on it every single time, like that's where the misery starts to, to seep in. So, you know, is minimalism a Western solution? Yeah, but it's also an Eastern solution. It's a solution for anyone. It might, they might just have a different problem that they're using minimalism to solve. Yeah, I think all the great thinkers that I'm that I'm inspired by, not all of them, but many of them are, are from the Eastern world, from India in particular. And uh, I mean, there are ancient philosophies. And, and so this is not a new solution. I don't think of it as a solution, but I understand why people use that word. It's not a new idea. But what is new is the problem. And it's this Western problem that has been amplified by, I mean, it doesn't it feel a bit dystopian that the place you buy groceries from is also the place that you know, is essentially where you buy everything from. I mean, this was what movies did as almost a parody of the future just 20, 30 years ago. It was like, oh yeah, everything you buy is all going to come from one mega corporation. They call it like Acme or something. And it turns out it's just Amazon now. And now when people hear me say that, they, they think I'm saying, well, Amazon is bad or evil and we should you know, do something to them. No, 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 I'm not talking about that. Well, what I'm talking about is how we make our decisions. And what we do quite often is we opt for convenience. We remove all of our friction. And that sounds wonderful until you realize once you've removed all the friction, you also lose traction. If you're just driving on ice, you're going to slide all over the place. And that's what we're doing right now with consumerism. Thanks for your question. Thanks. Uh, I don't want to get the request pass. Is um, your book in the Georgia library system has always like a 30 people waiting line because there's only like one copy in the whole state. So if anyone here has a spare copy, please donate it. <laughs> yes, yes, please. Um, oh, that's awesome. That's how you can minimize it afterwards. Man, w there's a bunch of uh, minimalists going to the library. Wait, wait, and 30 in line, that's crazy. Yeah, and it's... Um, <laughs> And the thing is, like, I know they try to supply a bunch to, to libraries, but at some point, like, the best way we can do that is when you're done with a book, you just donate it to your local library. It'll go right into the system. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so awesome. much. Yeah. Thanks for that request. Howdy. Hey. Patreon supporter here. What's your name? Oh, man. Samir. Hey, Samir. Thanks for supporting us, Samir. What's on your mind? Um, you kind of answered this, but I was looking for a little bit of a deeper answer. Um, it's rare that you, you see a duo like you guys work together for so long. 
Um, how do you resolve conflict? You know, wait, 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 wait. Is, is there any context that you want to? No, no context. No context? I just no. give in as much as I can, honestly. <laughs> like, no. let's, let's talk about what, what, what do you mean by conflict, really? Because... Um, and, and I'm not trying to put you guys on the no, spot. I'm no, saying, it's a good question. I'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. I'm, I'm just yeah. trying to... I, I just... I don't... The question presupposes that there's conflict. No, no, so so for example, like if you know, I've had businesses in the past where I've had partners. Some of them worked out well, some of them didn't work out well. And I'm thinking, how could I have better uh, headed off that conflict rather than saying this isn't going to work and throw my hands up in the air and walk away? Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, in a situation like that, like with with a business partner, I am in a situation like that with a business partner. <laughs> Well, I mean, first off, Josh and I have known each other since we were fat little fifth graders. That's totally true. So, like, we know each other very, very well, which means we really understand each other's preferences. We understand each other's likes and dislikes and, and our little quirks and whatever it is. And the fact is, is that him and I, or even me and TK, I mean, you know, these are two men that I really, really love. So I go out of my way to respect their preferences, to respect them. And here's, a th here's a, so that's number one, is I go out of my way to respect my friends, family, business partners. The other thing, because well, that is the best way to get respect back, by the way, is when you can go out of your way to respect someone's preferences, then they're more apt to go out of their way to respect your preferences. If you're starting from a, a zero-sum game and you're like, well, I'm not going to budge until they budge, I mean, that's probably not, not the right approach. But uh, the, other, the other thing, too, is, oh, man, I totally forgot what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I got an answer, but it's a short one. I'd love to hear what TK has to say about yeah. conflict. Okay, go now. Okay, go. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think about this uh, Bobby McFerrin song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. And, and don't worry, that's not my answer. But there's a line in there where he says, uh, In every life you have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. <laughs> do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah, we can. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that line, though, because it, it captures the idea that having problems isn't a problem. What makes problems difficult is we resent our lives for even having them. And so I think the first step to dealing with any problem is embracing the process of problem solving as a spiritual practice, to recognize that problems are not curses, but problems are gifts, not because they feel good, but because they make us better. And most of the things in life that are for our good are the things that challenge us, are the things that push us out of our comfort zones. Because we not only attract things into our lives based on our current state of consciousness, but also based on our own innate impulse towards progress. There's a part of us that's in tune with certain realities, but there's another part of us that's always striving to become a better version of ourselves. And sometimes we attract people and challenges into our lives that are designed to help us get to that next level of self-authenticity. So when you have a problem, say, you know what? I'm going to be present in a state of non-judgmental open-mindedness and attend to what this problem is trying to teach me. Second, because you didn't just ask about problems, you asked about conflict, which presupposes that there's another person involved. I just read a quote the other day by Mother Angelica that said, being a saint would be easy if it wasn't for other people. Right? That's the hard part, right? It's the, it's when you put the other person in there, it gets really difficult. Here, here's one piece of advice I'd, I'd give on that, and, and I'll hand it over to Josh. I would say, whenever you're trying to resolve a problem with another person, don't try to convince the other person 
that, or don't, don't base your solution on trying to get the other person to agree with you on how much of an idiot you think they're being. <laughs> because if the other person needs to agree with you on how much of an idiot you think they're being in order to solve the problem, the problem will never get solved. Instead of focusing on their idiocy, step back and focus on what is the goal. Because what is a problem? A, a problem is when you have a goal, some kind of outcome, experience, or result you want to create, and then there's some other kind of thing that functions as an obstacle standing between you and that desired outcome. That's what the problem is. And problems cannot exist if we didn't have goals or outcomes that we want to create. And so use that problem as an opportunity to take inventory of the outcomes you want to create and say, is there an opportunity for me to let that go? Is there an opportunity for me to let go of the assumption that I need that outcome in order to be who I am, that I need that outcome in order to be happy? And also you can ask yourself, is there a way of going about that outcome that doesn't require me to be married to the path that I've become addicted to following? So can I let go of either the outcome or can I let go of my one-dimensional way of thinking about how to manifest that outcome? I love that, man. It's like, it's like are you... Are you, is it, will you, are you willing to let it go? Are you willing to like plant your flag and die on this hill? Yeah. And so, and thanks because like that totally helped me grab my thought back from the ether. <laughs> I don't take things personal. Like I try so hard to not take things personal. To say I don't take things personal, that's like 99% true. There are some times where I catch myself in that and I'm like, wait, why am I taking this so personal? Like this is a problem that a friend has and I have the opportunity to help them solve it. This isn't a knock at me. This is, this is just an inconvenience right now, or yeah, maybe it is a problem arising. So not take, and I do this with my, my wife, Mariah, who's here somewhere. Thanks for coming, Mariah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, tr I try really hard like, to just not take things personal, because sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll be in a mood myself for whatever reason, and I might have a certain energy that I'm projecting or an emotion that I'm projecting and that has nothing to do with anyone but me and it's like I will have to sometimes say like hey I know I'm being kind of a crap head right now I see a kid in the front audience so I'm going to try and not cuss this whole <laughs> podcast you know I'm trying I know I'm like being a jerk right now but please don't take this personal it's it truly is not you it's me I'm just like a little messed up right now so not only do I not take things personal I also try to go out of my way to like make sure other people aren't taking things personal from me What's your name, man? Samir. Samir. All conflict is self-conflict. I think that um, we get so caught up in thinking that um, the problem is outside of us and the, whatever the other person's behavior is is making us mad. But the anger arises within us and that person could behave in that same exact situation or quote-unquote worse with someone else with a completely different outcome. The anger would not arise within them. So anytime we feel frustrated, anytime we feel upset, anytime we feel offended, and we get offended recreationally now, <laughs> that's never someone else's problem. It's always my, even if they've done something to intentionally try to, def, to offend me, to upset me, it's up to me. And so... The reason that we often get offended is because we've been, we've been told a lie, that things are good or bad or right or wrong. The other day, Ryan and I were talking about a very specific thing, and he told me I was being complacent about that thing. And 
a knee-jerk reaction from me would be like, well, no, I'm not. But the answer is, yeah, I am. And what's wrong with that? I, I, I felt like it was, yes, it is perfectly appropriate for me to be complacent about this thing. And so, yes, you're right. I understand that I am. And because Ryan wasn't saying, well, you should be another way. And I think the, way, the reason that we have very little conflict between us is because we love each other. But most of us don't understand what love is. We say love is what? There's a bit in the book where it's, um, I love my wife, but I also love burritos. <laughs> well, neither one of those things are love when we talk about it. Because when we talk about loving burritos, what, do we, what does that mean? I really like this thing. That's great. Well, when I say I love my wife, what does that mean? Well, most of us say it, mean, it means it, it's an attachment. I'm attached to this person. I need you. We've been told those lies by pop songs for a long time now, right? I need you in order to be happy. You complete me. <laughs> Nonsense. I'm already complete without you, but you do augment or enhance my experience of life. To love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. And so the reason Ryan and I don't have a ton of con conflict is because I'm not trying to change him and he's not trying to change me. To try to change someone means you hate who they are. You could tweet that podcast, Sean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me a hello, man. Oh, man. <laughs> Especially when you were like, because you were looking at me, you were like, you, you don't, I'm completing myself, but you augment me. <laughs> TK, you incomplete me. <laughs> That's right, but we love you still. Man, you. you know, it, it made me think when you were saying that, Josh, how whenever there is some type of disagreement or misunderstanding, or you can call it conflict, whatever you want, I look at it as an opportunity to like understand you more. Yes. And, and through understanding you, I understand other people. And so when you escalate a conflict, you are losing that opportunity to have a deeper understanding for who, whatever it is, whoever it is that you're having that conflict with. So going out of your way to understand is always going to, it's just always going to be more meaningful. Well, the opposite of that is what? Self-righteousness. Yeah. And so that's the reason that we want to be right in a situation. In order for me to be right, someone else has to be wrong. These are just cultural imperatives that we've made up. Oh, I'm right, therefore you're wrong. It's like, maybe we just have a different understanding of this thing. Help me understand your understanding. And even at the end of this, if I don't completely understand, it doesn't mean that I'm right. It just means that I don't understand. You know, uh, one thing I'll add to that is we've kind of been conditioned to think about power as something that depends on getting other people to see reality in the same way as you. And so if, if I can't convince you to believe in my idea or if I can't get, convince you to vote in the way that I vote, well, then I'm, I'm fundamentally powerless because all power is democratic, right? Mm. Certainly there's no such thing as the creative power of the individual, which can be expressed in a way that's independent of other people's disagreement. Well, most of the good things that we get in life comes from that kind of creative power. There's this beautiful moment, and um, I'm going old school here, but it's in one of the Matrix movies where uh, Morpheus, he's this very esoteric character who believes in a lot of strange things. And he's arguing with this very pragmatic man and telling him what he thinks the solution is. And he gets very upset and he says, damn it, Morpheus. Not everyone believes in, in, in fairies and oracles and all of these things. Not everyone believes as you believe. And Morpheus looked at him and he said, fortunately, my beliefs do not require them to. Power isn't the ability to out-debate people. 
Power isn't the ability to use argument or logic to make people feel pressured to see things the way that you do. Power is the ability to look another person in the eye and say, you don't see it the way that I do. That's okay. I give you permission to be who you need to be because I know how to express myself authentically and creatively in spite of your disagreement. I love you anyway, and I'm going to do me anyway. And our lives will intersect organically at the place where our deepest gladness meets. That's power. Amen. Howdy. Hi, I'm Anna. Hey, Anna. What's on your mind? Um, first of all, I want to say um, I started listening to you guys like six years ago. And I, after I started listening to you guys, I set a really firm five-year plan to get out of debt. COVID kind of threw a wrench in that. But this summer, I'm completely debt-free, and I really want to... Yeah. 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 That's, hey, that is the new American dream right there, living debt-free. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And it's yeah. funny that you talk about loading everything in your car and moving anywhere, everywhere, because that's literally been my life for the last two years, and it's been really exciting. Um... So helping me a lot with debt, which was awesome. And I know my question is kind of a little bit more for the non-stuff, minimalizing side of things. So both of you have talked a lot about relationships with your families. And coming into the holidays this year, I feel like this is the first time that I'm actually um, healed enough to put my foot down and to really draw some of the lines in family relationships that haven't been the healthiest for me versus letting people bulldoze me all the time and overlooking a lot of um, bad situations in the past that are continuing to go and move forward. Um, And so I kind of want to ask you guys, what are some, some tips, some ideas about navigating the holidays for the first time when you want to be like, whoop, whoop, let me like pound my ideas in, but not like that. But I want to feel like healed (laughs) and empowered to like move into the holidays and navigate them for the, like in, in a way that's healthy for me for the first time. It sounds to me like you and your family have an unhealthy relationship with the hot. There's a, a tension here that has formed, especially with you in the last, it sounds like six years, uh, where this tension has formed, and now what has happened is your preferences have bifurcated from their preferences, right? Now, that self-righteousness thing we just talked about comes into play here because one thing, I don't hear this in what you're saying at all, but I just want to be careful for anyone listening to this. One person will bifurcate this way and they'll say, yes, I finally figured it out. Minimalism, that's the answer, and now my family is wrong for doing what they want to do. And and that is what often makes it contentious, right? Because those people now feel looked down upon as though you've, that's what self-righteousness is, is putting yourself on a pedestal and then accidentally looking down at other people or sometimes intentionally looking down at them. And so we want to be careful there. But my question for you is where, where exactly is the tension in this relationship? So my, um, my family used to belong to a cult And this is actually the first time that I've said this in front of people um, because it's the first time that I've tried to sort through some of these things. And um, there's a lot of things in my family, behaviors and toxic things that are swept under the rug. 
and they will come out and um, I feel like I'm very, I'm a very forgiving person when they come out and overlooking um, how they've chosen to put away the past without apologizing for it or put away the past without dealing with it. And I want, I, I, I feel like I need some advice in knowing how to be able to stand up for myself and um, minimize, like make the overlooking not the biggest part that is celebrated, but also make some some healthier connections at the same time, if that makes sense. What's what's hurting you right now? I, I can hear it in your voice. What what specifically is what's making these feelings arise within you? I think any time you deal with trauma, not me, but you. What's what, what's dealing? What, what's causing it in you? For me, it's something that I. I face on a daily basis um, yeah. the potential in different situations to be re-reminded or to be re-traumatized. So the, I, the most difficult thing for me is when I am around family members that seem to willingly want to re-traumatize or they do not see that they are allowing this behavior to continue um, to, be, to be safe for myself. You might just have to love those people from a distance. I, I like to use um, an analogy from an area where you have already been successful and, and maybe see if we can transfer what worked there into this new, seemingly more complicated situation. So you talked about how you've executed on this five-year plan to get out of debt. And I'm assuming that in order to do that, you had to create a budget. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. How would you define a budget? Well, on a very basic level, more money in than money out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's definitely the aim, right? Well, what makes getting out of debt really difficult for a lot of people is that they see a budget as, as kind of a bully. A bully that tells them, nope, you can't have fun. You want that glass of wine? Nope, you can't have it. You don't make enough money. Nope, you can't go to that movie because that's immoral. That's a sin for you to spend your money that way. And so people have such a hard time feeling excited about doing the things they need to do to get out of debt. And the people who are successful, like you, they come to the realization that a budget is not a bully that's there to steal your dreams. It's a bodyguard that's there to protect your highest intentions. A budget is a set of boundaries that you establish in order to safeguard or protect the things that matter most so that you are not a victim of impulsive spending, right? And I think we can apply that to our relationships. Just as you can create a financial budget, you can create an emotional budget. You can create a relationship budget because just like with your money, you also are a finite human being and you have a limited amount of energy that you can give to others. You have a limited amount of patience. You have a limited capacity to, to tolerate certain things, right? And it starts with being honest about that. So what I would suggest, just like with any budget, it doesn't really work unless you think about it ahead of time. I would say before you go home for the holidays, I would think about what my boundaries are ahead of time. And by boundaries, I don't mean things I won't do just because they're bad, but 
What are the things I need to do in order to protect my energy? How much time do I need alone? How much time, if I'm being honest with myself, can I stand being around my family? How much proximity can I stand? And it it can take a variety of different forms. It could take a form like, all right, when I go home with mom and dad, I'm not going to spend the night there. I'm going to stay somewhere else and I'm going to visit there so that my interactions with them have a definite beginning and a definite end. And it's easier for me to terminate conversations that way. It could be something like when I go over there, it's only going to be 30 minutes at a time. And no matter what, even if it's going well, I'm going to treat it like the casino. I'm making up my mind what my number is. Before I walk in, right? Because I know before I step into that casino, I got to know what my number is. Because once I get in it, I I don't think as critically. I have to remember what a previous version of TK told me before I walked in. And so I, I, I would suggest creating a budget in terms of how much time, how much energy you're going to give ahead of time, all of that stuff, how much time you're going to spend there, where you're going to stay, and so on so that you can safeguard what you need to be your best self. Because I know you want to be there for your family, and I can, I can sense that you love them. But you've got to remember that showing up for people isn't just about being physically present. It's also about being emotionally available. And just because you're physically present with them doesn't mean you're showing up strong. And the only way that you can show up strong is by anchoring your life in the things that nourish you. It's better to spend a little amount of time with them and show up powerfully than to spend a lot of amount of time with them and to interact resentfully. You could tweet that podcast, Sean. <laughs> um, man, I'm so excited for you to set some boundaries. I'm, I'm like really happy to hear that you have this, uh, like this newfound courage and determination to set these boundaries. And I know sometimes when you have these conversations, especially with loved ones, that it seems like you're being rude or you're not considering them, but to set boundaries is to love. To set boundaries is, is really to love yourself even more so. And if, you're, if your family loves you and they want you to be happy, hopefully they'll support your boundaries. Now that doesn't happen all the time. And that might be what you're really scared of right now. Like I think about my, my father and you know, he basically is like, hey, you need to be this religion or I'm not gonna be in your life. So I have the relationship I want with my dad, and then I have the relationship that is. And to get that relationship, I am not, there are boundaries I am not willing to let down or cross in order to get that relationship. So uh, there might also be a fear of, when you set these boundaries, you might feel like there's an opportunity you're going to miss out on these relationships that you really want to build with your family. That's a real possibility. And what I'll, what I'll say is with my father, I have had to have a funeral for that relationship. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I, I, I don't talk to him or I shun him or whatever it is. I, I have set up some boundaries with him, but I'm very open to things being different. It has to be on not just my terms, but his and I's terms. We can't seem to get those terms straightened out. So I have had to have a funeral for that relationship. So I would just encourage you, uh, you've got to set the boundaries up because this is, this is the only way you're going to feel best about yourself. And you do it with compassion. This isn't a my way or the highway. This isn't a you need to do this and I'm, you know, I've done this and you do that. The, the problem is, is when we when we get into these tough conversations, we start to use this language. And every time we say you, it's like, you've done this. You are this. 
and we bring up all these negative things. And then we're like, and I, and poor me, and I, I, I would, I would say flip it. Like when you're having this conversation, the best way to show compassion is every time you say the word you, make it positive. You know, I know that you tried to give me the best home. I know that you're trying to give me the best right now. I know you're such a loving parent, and I know that you're just showing your love. I really have to set up this boundary because there's something inside of me that really is telling me that I have to, I, I have to ask you for your help. Would you be willing to help me with this? So approaching at it in a very compassionate way is the best way to get uh, the response that you're looking for. Thanks for your question. Thank you. Good luck. Hey, Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your text messages. So how many people we got back in line? You're going to have to get your phones out and text. I'm just kidding. We'll answer them. We're live. But uh, for anyone listening to it, you can text your questions to area code 937-202-4654. Or it's on that little bookmark here as well. And you have a special code word you can text to us tonight. I'm not even going to say it on the recording, but you know what it is. Answers, answers have to be super short too, right? Isn't there like a rule? Well, so here's what we do during the lightning round. TK remembers this because he's been on the podcast so many times. But for those of you who are uninitiated, during the lightning round, so Ryan and I and our guests, we do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We call them minimal maxims. And podcast Sean puts them in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers. But really, TK, as you know, we just ramble on a bit until we find something that's a little bit pithy. Who has a question back there for us? Hi, I'm Tabitha. Hey, Tabitha. Um, what's on your mind? Well, I have an answer for the question that Ryan opened with, and then I have a question for you, Joshua. So Ryan opened with, what are you holding on to? And the short answer is my starting line. You know, a start line of poverty is a stone once cast that ripples throughout the rest of your life. The effect of basic needs scarcity creates inner obstacles for outwardly successful people. It certainly birthed a sense of being overwhelmed in my adult life. I would hesitate or hit pause on big life events, such as buying a home, accepting help and love, and from feeling worthy of things I'd worked hard to achieve. Finding your podcast years ago and practicing minimalism has calmed the ripple effect and served me well. I have a rewarding career as a public servant. I'm in a marriage that is true and beautiful. I'm a proud homeowner. Though as a minimalist, it doesn't have much in it. Um, <laughs> I found a sense of self-respect and peace by letting go of a start line that was never meant to be my finish line. I've taken ownership of my things, my thoughts, my time, and my finances, and I want to thank both of you for pushing beyond your own start lines and teaching this way of life to me and others. You've been lovely guides, and you have my gratitude. That's beautiful. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, that's, that is beautiful. Mm. I got goosebumps. <laughs> Congratulations. Question, thank you. My question for you, Joshua, because I, I connect most with your story. Does your past life in Dayton and experiencing poverty still affect how you interact with others now that you have your needs met? You used a, a great word, yeah, hesitation, and you, you would hesitate to make certain decisions, right? But then we yes. start to treat that word as though it's a bad thing as well. We get this weird, these sort of weird conflicting advice, right? Like, uh, he who hesitates 
is lost, right? Um, and, and, and then so like, um, and, th- and then we have other people tell us, look before you leap. That just means hesitate. <laughs> and so um, I, I, I do look at my upbringing as, as growing up relatively poor. I mean, probably in the bottom, I don't know, two or three percent of America. Um, and it was, it was an unfortunate upbringing. I certainly learned a lot from that. But I've distanced myself from that, not through, well, partially through time, but mostly through understanding. And that, as you said, that start line is not a finish line, but also realizing there isn't a finish line. Now, there were a lot of stories that I told myself early on about the reason we're so unhappy growing up poor is well, we don't have any money. And so I tried that. I went out and got the entry-level corporate job, and I figured out if you work 80 hours a week every single week and don't take any vacations for over a decade, you'll climb your way up the corporate ladder. The happiness won't come with it. We've been told this other lie, sold a lie of success. In our country, in this part of the world, what does success look like? If I show you a magazine ad with a successful person, what, what is that person doing or wearing? They're wearing, yeah, it's a guy wearing a suit. And what else are they doing? What do they own? They have a nice car, right? What else? They always have a watch. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what else? TK's do they have? like covering up his wrist right now. <laughs> <laughs> they, they always. Have, what else do they have? A house, right? Okay. They have what? A dog. Okay. Really expensive dog. Yeah. Okay. A like mastiff. one of those. One of the no. One of those like doodle mixes that cost like two thousand dollars. <laughs> what else do they have? I hear kids. I heard what? A trophy wife. Aha. What else? Fence. I heard debt. Let's set that aside for a second because here's the thing. The advertisement never shows the debt. A yacht. Yeah. Okay. So you've got all these things, this ostensible success, right? Now, let me just be clear. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. There are people who are really passionate about boating who might find immense value in a yacht. There are other people who feel compelled to buy a yacht because it says something about who they are to the people around them. So success doesn't really exist. Not like that. Because that's the, that's the iceberg, but it's just the tip there. Everything underneath there is the debt. The debt. But there's all this emotional debt too. Stress, anxiety, overwhelm, discontent. Everything that you spent to get to this picture of success, this is a tether. This is a very beautiful prison that we've put ourselves in. Do you remember, was it, um, oh, who was it? Um, uh, oh, the really expensive, um, in Colombia, the really expensive prison that... Um, oh, Pablo Escobar? Yeah, Escobar put himself in. And so, like, he... For those of you who don't know the story, he basically, like, they put him in prison, but he basically got to build the prison... What a metaphor for what we've done to ourselves. <laughs> it's like we're caged behind the white picket fence, right? And it's no wonder we're so miserable because we've told ourselves some story. I told myself the story when I was young 
Oh, if I just had money, I'd be happy. If I just had success, I'd be happy. And I got all the things. And then it was like, oh, that didn't make me happy. And at first, the impulse is what? You know it will make me happy? If I get rid of the things. Wrong. You can get rid of it all, right? This isn't about being an ascetic. These austerities, for the sake of being austere, don't really do it either. They're not going to make you happy. And this, we get rid of the stuff. Oh, crap. You know what the problem was? I didn't buy the right things. <laughs> Instead of the Mercedes, I should have bought the Lexus. And then we just go down a different type of consumerism. And so all of these stories that we tell ourselves, they're disempowering. Instead of, instead of just creating new disempowering stories, it's about letting go of those stories as well. Your question um, it brought up some of my traumas from growing up. And trauma is a weird thing because, I don't know, like I used to look at trauma as uh, these instances that happen and this created that trauma, this created this trauma, yada, yada, yada. But someone helped me reframe it once um, and help me look at trauma like, uh, like it's an onion. It kind of builds on itself. It's like this layer that just keeps, uh, keeps building. And it's helped me to just view it in a, in a little bit of a different way. And for me, like to talk to my, to talk to that little kid, like I will seriously like talk to my five, five-year-old self, like, it's okay, buddy. <laughs> like, what did I need to hear then? Like, that's kind of how I deal with it. But what it's really helped me appreciate is that, uh, and here's the pithy answer. Trauma may happen to you, but you are not your trauma. Mm. Yes. TK. I mean, just building on that, I, I've heard it said before that um, that pain is the experience of discomfort. Suffering is the identification of self with the experience of pain. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional, right? Even when we say things like, my starting point, my starting point was rough, my starting point was this, my starting point was that, that's not literally true. And I don't say that to me to be like the semantic version of Steve Urkel. I, I, I think there's something important here for us to understand about the way we narrate our lives. The starting point literally was like in the womb of your mother. It was, you know, when you were born and you don't know what's going on and you're crying and somebody's holding you in their arms. That's technically the starting point. And you didn't know anything about poverty at that moment. You didn't even know what poverty was. You had none of those concepts going on. That was the starting point. So what do you mean and what do we mean when we use that kind of language and say, my starting point was tough? What we mean is in the process of narrating our lives, when we look back in the past, we find moments. We find moments and events that seem to have significance for us. They're moments that really broke our hearts. They're moments that really disappointed us, moments that really inspired us. And we are using those moments as the foundation upon which we will build our lives. And part of understanding the optional nature of suffering is realizing that what you are calling a starting point is negotiable. It's not literally true. It's metaphorically true. And the fact that it's metaphorically true doesn't mean that it's bad, wrong, or you need to feel guilty about it. It just means that it's an expression of your creativity. And since you created it, you can uncreate it. You can recreate it. You can redefine your story. Second thing I'll say is that your starting point is the substance of your testimony. Think about when you go to a movie and you watch a trailer and they all kind of start the same. P 
people are happy, people are laughing, maybe they're driving down the highway, they're hanging out, they're having a good time. And how do you feel? Completely bored. You're not interested in this movie, right? And then the music changes, the lights get dim, the camera backs up, and you can tell from the cinematography that someone is watching these people having a good time. And we don't know who that is, and we don't know what they're up to. And now we got ourselves a movie. Yeah. Now we got something that you want to see, right? Because that conflict is what makes the story interesting. That conflict is what makes the story special. You're not interested if everyone's just having a good time. And I think when, when you think about like these rough starting points in your life, I just want you to understand that those rough starting points are the very things that make your life special. When you figure out how to cope with them or how to conquer them, you have a testimony that no one else can replace. That's what makes you indispensable. In the world of comedy, the best kind of joke is the kind of joke that no one can steal because there are a lot of jokes that you can steal. If, if you tell a joke about why the chicken crossed the road, I can take that from you and pretend that I have it. But if you tell a joke about your daughter, I, I can't steal it because it's you. And so when you have a tough starting point or a moment in your life by which you define yourself and it seems like it's holding you back, please understand that that starting point is what gives you a joke that nobody can steal. But you've got to create the punchline for it. You've got to give yourself the permission and the power to decide how you're going to narrate that. Yeah. We On the drive up from Florida today, we were listening to a philosopher, Emil Chiron from Romania, and um, well, some of his work at least. And, and Ryan and I were just having these philosophical discussions around it. And what was really fascinating about him is he really liked to hang out with losers. How did he decide who's a loser? Anyone who failed a lot. And he found exactly what you're saying. The failure is so much more compelling than the success. The reason you all are here tonight is because Ryan and I found some corporate success in our 20s, and you want to figure out how you too can become a director of operations for a telecommunications company. No. You, you, learn, you, you learn from us because we have these really screwed up childhoods when you know, Ryan's I mean, his door was kicked in in eighth grade. A SWAT team raided his house because his mom was selling things she shouldn't be selling. And um, that's part of our history, right? When we write in the book about Ryan spending $5,000 a month on uh, an overdosing and ended up in this men mental institution for a while. This is not a starting point, but these are the, this is me and Ryan being losers and showing you that you can, be that, but then you can also be something else. I remember one of our very first conversations, TK, it was not on air, but um, we were talking about poverty and, and growing up poor, and no one ever had ever said this to me before, but you said, well, poverty is the default state. And people always ask, what causes poverty? But why aren't we asking what causes prosperity? And oh, I, I'm getting chills just thinking about that, man. Why don't we talk about that? I think that downplays how special we all are. I mean, my, my fundamental conviction in life is that each one of us is, pardon me, but I gotta be me, y'all ask me to come here. I believe that each one of us is, is meant to be a unique, individualized expression of divine brilliance and divine beauty. 
I know that language doesn't resonate with everyone, but I must speak from the person that I am, right? That's what I believe, and that's how I try to treat people. You know, it's why I like that greeting namaste, because it means I salute the divinity within you. Mm. You know, it's why I like that idea that we're created in the image and likeness of God, because when I interact with another person, I'm not talking to someone who can be below me or beneath me, but someone who is both one with me in some very real sense, but who is also here to express an aspect of divinity that when I see, I can experience that awe, mm. you know? Uh, so I, I think if we just dismiss all wealth as luck, we, we kind of miss out on the magic of, of, of what makes us special as human beings. So I think the way I'd approach it is I would say, well, first there's a distinction between abundance and wealth. Abundance is any situation where you have a, a plethora of resources, right? You go to the, the beach, you've got an abundance of sand, you go to the ocean, you've got an abundance of water, just a lot of stuff, library, abundance of books. But abundance isn't wealth because if that were the case, no one would be poor. There are lots of people who live in very abundant places, but they, their basic needs aren't even met. Wealth is when we take the abundant resources of the universe and we mingle it with our creativity, our imagination, our sense of possibility, and we mold it and we shape it in a way so that we do something with those resources that doesn't characterize their default state, and we share it with another human being, and another human being looks at it and says, wow, that's awesome. Can I, can I give you something that I made in exchange for that? Or, or can I give you some money for that? Can I say thank you for that? Can I reward you for that? And you know, when you listen to economists talk, they use these charts and graphs, and they talk about prices and profits, but really, economics is all about the creative power of the individual. It's all about the magic that happens when people engage the resources of the universe with a sense of possibility and say, I will not accept the world as it was when it was presented to me, but I will use what is within me to make it more so that when I leave, they will say, that brother was here. That sister was here, right? They showed up. Yeah. And that's how we get wealth. We, we, we get wealth by externalizing the spiritual richness that we came here with. TK yeah. president. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I can promise you he will never run for president. <laughs> Thank you all very much for that lovely answer. Thank you. Appreciate it. I know we got time for at least one. How many people are back there? Six. Oh, we got time for one more. I apologize to the rest of the line. You can text us, so I promise you we'll do our best to get to an answer. But they're going to kick us out of here eventually. We may get to two, but I'm going to promise you one. Um, so first, I want to thank you for both uh, directly and indirectly empowering me to leave an unfulfilling job. And Congrats. I have since... Yeah. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, What's your name? Oh, sorry. My name is Crystalline. Hey, Crystalline. What's um, on your mind? Yeah, um, I, I've become a completely different person since I started living in accordance with my values, which is wild, imagine. Um, but yes, yeah, so thank you. Thank you for that. I, um, I, my mental health has significantly improved, and I feel like I am serving a purpose, and that's, that's really a big, a big thing for me. Um, so my question for you is related to mental health, actually. 
Um, so even though I know what my values are at my core, I sometimes find myself going through periods where it is difficult to continue to hold myself accountable to living in accordance with those values. I know that being hard on myself doesn't solve anything, um, and I'm not looking for a prescription, but I would love to hear more about how you each work to keep yourselves living intentionally, and uh, specifically when your brain is trying to do otherwise. Give me an example. Um, so I have ADHD, and that can make me pretty impulsive sometimes. And I don't want to be impulsive, and I know that I don't want to be impulsive, uh, but sometimes it can still be a little hard to fight that. Yeah, I have OCD, and so I can be quite obsessive sometimes. Last night, we finished the Orlando event, and it, was, it went great. Everyone seemed to love it except me. <laughs> and... Um, I will often tell myself stories that aren't true. And we were just talking about this on the drive up, actually. And I noticed this isn't a prescription, so I'm not telling you to do it. But I've noticed that something has arisen in me in the last two years, well, last year and a half, really, um, that has totally eviscerated a lot of the self-doubt. And... Whenever I start to get into these sort of obsessive self-doubt spirals, I literally laugh out loud uncontrollably at it. I can't help it because I see it for what it is. I see the absurdity, which is also what Emil was talking about, the philosopher we were talking about earlier, the, the absurdity of, of the universe, basically. It's all absurd when you look at it. And we take these things so freaking seriously. And that's what this downward spiral happens for me with these negative thoughts. And I, I, whenever I catch myself looking at that, I just laugh, and it instantly, I just, it evaporates, and it comes back, and I just laugh at it again, because it's all absurd. You know, um, there's a certain, there's a certain benefit in looking at our various moods as kind of like the seasons, you know, where summer days are, are really exciting in a way that winter days may not be, and both of those days may be kind of tolerable in a way that rainy days might not be. But because we sort of accept that as part of the nature of reality, because we don't look at the universe as, you know, expressing its mood, you know, and it's, we're going to have a sunny day in the middle of December in Chicago, we don't expect that, right? Like we accept it as part of the cycles of nature. We, we plan around those things and we say, okay, it's winter. I'm going to go skiing. I'm going to go sledding. Hey, it's rainy. I can't do a picnic today. Wish I could, but I can't do a picnic today. That's cool. I'm going to take out an umbrella. I'm going to wear a hoodie. I'm going to stay inside, have some hot cider or something like that. We know what TK does when it rains. It's, <laughs> it's really hot out today. Like, ah, maybe I'll go to the beach. And we plan around it, right? I think we can do that with ourselves as well because our feelings are kind of like the seasons. They move in cycles. And it's very easy to view feelings of irritation, feelings of unhappiness, feelings of low motivation as some sort of evidence against yourself, as some sort of sign that you're doing something wrong. And I would encourage you to look at those as like rainy days or like snowy days. It's not a sign that I'm doing something wrong. It's a sign that I'm a multidimensional human being who requires the full range of my emotional spectrum in order to be alive. And that's why there is so much great art and there's so 
many great expressions of creativity that come from these different states. You do not get all of the great love songs and all the great movies if you are just one dimensional in the way you feel. You don't get that from a state of, yeah, I feel motivated all the time and this is like the level that I'm always at. Or you if know, you're just winning all the time. Winning all the time. Someone yeah. who's winning all the time does not write a great memoir. I mean, look at all yeah. the sports biographies. They're the most vapid books. When you read the books about winners, well, here's what I did, yeah. and then after I won that tournament, I went on and I decided to win the next one. Yeah. It's like, what the hell am I going to learn from that, right? Yeah. There's never any rain or snow. It's always sunny and perfect. And, um, of course, our internal state, there's... There are, weather, well, there are certain weather patterns there. I think that's a beautiful analogy. Yeah, can I say one more thing about it? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the goal is to be happy or motivated. I think the goal is to be emotionally versatile, to live in a state of harmony with all of your different feelings, regardless of what they are. And so think of it as a kind of psychological choreography. When, um, when music is playing and you're at a wedding, right, and they play some song like YMCA or I Got a Feeling or Happy by Pharrell, you're not lost, right? Because those kinds of songs are really easy to dance to. All you got to do is just move your body and whatever you do is going to be right. But suppose the DJ just switches it up and plays something like jazz or plays something like polka. It's easier to feel awkward, easier to feel uncomfortable. And I think happiness and motivation, those are like genres of music that are easy to dance to, which is why when we feel good, we don't call up our friends being like, man, I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I just feel so amazing right now. Right? <laughs> but we do that. When we feel jealous, when we feel angry, when we feel sad, we're confused because we don't know how to dance to that. And, and that doesn't mean that something is wrong with us. It just means that this is a genre of music that requires a different kind of coordination. And it's an art unto itself. And you've got to learn to dance with jealousy. You've got to learn to dance with sadness. You've got to learn to dance with anger. But all of those emotions are your friends and they can take you some, to very interesting places. So I would say... Be present to your different feeling states at these various times and develop a plan for being intentional and saying, okay, when I feel this way, instead of resisting that feeling and fighting against it and trying to make myself feel a better emotion, I'm going to learn how to dance to that by observing what sorts of activities do I have an easier time grooving with when I feel that way. This may be a time for me to write. This may be a time for me to call a loved one. This may be a time for me to take some self-care and lay back and do something mellow like meditate. This may be a time for me to increase my exercise. This may be a time for me to do whatever it is you have an easy time grooving to. Yeah. 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 The power of observation. <clears throat> that was awesome, man. Well, it makes me like the pithy answer is something like... Uh, observation is more powerful than acting in, in some cases, right? Yeah. yeah, especially with these emotions. So I'm ADHD. He has ADD type <clears throat> 2. Right. No, I am ADHD as well. Um, that is why I will have two thoughts in my head and the one is just like, see ya. Um, <clears throat> so I, yeah, I, I totally get those impulses, but I'm just curious. Tell me one of the impulses that like you find yourself beating yourself up over. Oh, um, so like when I, when I say like impulsive, I mean like self-medicating with caffeine or like doing things that like I know will make me feel better temporarily, but then like all that caffeine leads to anxiety and like bad yeah. things and yeah. 
like, you know, not, not great things. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I totally get that. You know, I have this, I, I mean, I get disagreed with a lot on this, but I feel like we're all addicted to something. And, you know, choose your addictions carefully. That's what I'll say. That's my pithy answer. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Thank you. One more hey, quick thing. Yeah. Well, please, I'm so sorry. I, I know they're going to kick us out. But, but look, I, 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 I think temptation is just an attractive opportunity to meet a legitimate need in perhaps an unhealthy way. But the thing you've got to do when you experience temptation is not fall into that trap of being like, oh my gosh, this is evidence that I'm evil. How disgusting of me to want coffee when I know that I shouldn't want it. You've got to validate that temptation and say, I would not crave this unless there was a legitimate need for something that is okay for me to have. And it turns out that based on my habits and based on my knowledge and based on my experience, I'm limited to thinking that coffee is the thing that's going to do it. And it is going to do it, but it's also going to bring along some baggage that I don't want. So the goal isn't to just resist the thing that we shouldn't do. You've got to find something that truly meets that need in a healthy way because the need is legitimate, even if the way of going about it is self-detrimental. So what are some ways you can explore the possibility for satisfying whatever that craving is during those moments of self-medicating? Don't fall into a lifestyle of just trying not to do the wrong thing. There's a verse in the Bible for this, by the way. It says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Ladies and gentlemen, T.K. Coleman. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan, I can't believe they let us do this. Oh, my God. It's, we are the luckiest mofos in the world, man. Uh, <laughs> you know what? It's... Before we wrap up, I want to say thanks to the fine folks at the City Winery, Erica and Jason and uh, Chef D as well, and everyone yeah. else working here tonight. Give them a round of applause. Yeah. Woo. And most important, I want to thank you tonight. You know, you spent some money to get in here, and we're grateful for that because it means Ryan and I don't have to sleep in the car tonight. We even get separate hotel rooms now, which is a giant luxury for us. We used to, when we go out on tours, like I said, it's our uh, 10th tour in 11 years. It used to be we'd sleep in his Corolla unless we sold enough books in order to split a room at the La Quinta Inn. (laughs) I remember the first time we got separate hotel rooms, I'm like, can we afford this? (laughs) (laughs) And it feels like quite the luxury, man. So we've we've been through it. and uh, so, yeah, you spent some money to be here tonight. We're grateful for that. And it helps us pay for our whole team as well. We have uh, a nice big team back in, in Los Angeles who help us create meaningful things and help people heal their relationship with stuff. And so we're certainly grateful for that. But you spent your two most precious resources with us tonight, your time and your attention. We're so grateful for that. So give yourselves a round of applause for being here tonight. Yeah. Woo! We owe you a bunch of hugs, so make sure you come back next time and get two. I don't know where you are in life. I don't know where you're going from here, but I do hope you leave with at least one message. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for being here tonight, Atlanta! Yeah! T.K. Coleman! Every little thing you think that you need 
Every little thing you think that you need, every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it.